Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to a TVO podcast. Word Bomb by TVO, the podcast that explodes today's most talked about words and brings you stories the dictionary doesn't tell you. I'm Pippa Johnstone. And I'm Karina Palmatesta. And today we're talking about the word dox. So Karina, first things first, what does it mean to dox someone? Doxing is a verb and it has its origins in the early days of the internet. It's slang for the phrase dropping documents, which was then shortened to dropping docs. Mm -hmm. And that was whittled down to its final shorthand of docs, spelled D-O-X-X or sometimes just D-O-X. So doxing is the act of releasing personally identifiable information about an individual on the Internet. So you may have heard of doxing in the news. Doxing and other tactics that hackers use are at the heart of high-profile controversies like Gamergate or well-known groups like WikiLeaks or Anonymous. I wanted to hear about how doxing actually started. So I got in touch with Molly Sauter. Molly's a PhD candidate at McGill University, and they study the politics of technology. Cool. They actually published a book in 2014 on the tactics of hacktivism. Hacktivism? Yeah, like hacker activism hacktivism a portmanteau yes one of those molly told me a great story about what might be one of the first known doxes on record here's molly so doxing its evolution is pretty interesting there was an incident in the uh, sort of 80s 90s where john perry barlow who is one of the old men of the internet who died recently went on to do a live chat with Harper's, the magazine. They were going to talk about the future of the internet. And so he was in this web chat talking about how the freedom of the internet was amazing, how it enabled all this creativity, how it was going to be great for humanity, and how information wanted to be free and all of this stuff. And the hacker who was on the chat basically said, you have no idea what you've unleashed on the world at large. And JP's like, oh, well, I think I have a good idea what data is available and how people get it. And the guy's like, oh, really? Well, here's an aerial photograph of your house. Here's your address. Here's your credit card number. And like just pulled all of this information. So that was an original docs. It was it was made for political reasons. It was basically saying like, you don't know what you've done. Here's how you've changed the world and you don't get it. And that's scarier than the things that you've actually done. Dun, dun, dun. That sounds like the flashback sequence of a horror movie. <laughs> yes. So when did that happen? That was in 1989, which I know that's uh, like before either of us were born, but <laughs> um, not 
really that long ago. Like the more things change, the more they stay the same. Exactly. The internet is still creating consequences and behaviors that nobody can predict long term. It's like a whole new social code, a whole new language, really. Actually, the word "dox" in itself is a really great example of something that linguists call "netspeak" or the language of the internet. Netspeak sounds like something a dad would come up with. <laughs> it, it does, <laughs> and there are like so many of those words that we use so casually, but really only sprung up in the last like thirty years or so that the internet was a household utility. Yeah. And when you think about it, it's really cool because the internet has caused this explosion of new concepts and ideas that we need words to refer to. Yeah, and we like rely on a lot of metaphors, like hard copy metaphors, like files or folders, desktop, or desktop, exactly. But something I think is really cool is that when you think about people that are teenagers today, for instance,、mm -hmm. they've never not had the internet. They've never had to. Like associate metaphors with digital items to make them more understandable to themselves.、Mm -hmm. It's interesting to think about what'll happen in the future as technology advances, as we need more and more words. What someone who has never not been online might call something. So I asked Molly when doxing started, and they said something that surprised me at the time. Oh yeah, Molly said. Doxing has been going on for as long as there's been more than one person on the internet. Ooh, <laughs> I know. Like I was expecting to hear, oh, doxing started gradually as like X person and X group, and because of this advancement. But no, it actually goes back all the way to the very beginnings of the internet as we know it. The beginning of the internet is such a weird concept to think about as someone who grew up with it always around. Yeah, I guess we're talking about the early nineties. Yes, yeah,、uh, the early nineties is when the very first online communities began to gather,、mm. and they gathered on what's called BBS bulletin board systems. So BBS boards were the first time that a brand new internet user could do things like log in. Upload and download data, exchange messages privately and publicly. So they were like basically the precursor to what the internet is now. Okay, so BBS boards you're talking about, those were developed in the '90s. The first BBS was developed in 1978, but household use didn't actually hit till the early 1990s. So BBS boards were, as Molly called it. The original online clubhouses, <laughs> clubhouses where you could find the very first generation of hackers. Here's Molly. Whenever you have a clubhouse, you always have new people in the clubhouse, and new people are annoying because new people don't get it. They don't know the rules. They don't know the norms. In hacker culture, they're usually trying to prove themselves. And doxing became a mode of internal community policing. So when you would have A kid who showed up who wanted to prove that they were a big man. A way to deal with that individual would have been to dox them or drop their dox, which is a way of saying you don't have the skills you think you have, and if you don't quit it, I'm going to call your mom, Jimmy. And you would prove this by being like, "Here's where you live. Here's your address. Here's your full name. Here's your email spool." So it's a power play. Exactly, that was doxing then—a power play to assert yourself in these small new online communities. But doxing now is a completely different story. 
And we have the rise of social media to thank for that, because the mid-2000s was when the social media juggernauts that we know today were mostly launched. So Facebook, Twitter. Mm -hmm. Facebook opened up to everyone above age 13 in 2006. Wow. I know. And Twitter was launched in the same year. That's weird to think about. 2006, it all changed. And as Molly told me, doxing was never the same again. So in the early days of doxing, we have... I'm proving that I'm a better hacker than you are. You don't necessarily, like, really engage in sustained harassment. It's a one-time thing where someone is doing a behavior, you smack them with a rolled-up newspaper, and you say, bad. So that's early days. Doxing evolves in the interim period between the BBS internet and the modern social media internet. So as if before we had, like, small, isolated tide pools where you had neat little strings of evolution and funny little mollusk collections, and they all sort of existed on their own, and they didn't really jump from one to the other, suddenly we have giant ocean. Everything is involved with everyone else. Everyone is in each other's pockets. Everyone's up each other's nose all the time. It's super easy to jump from one group to another. And when you bring the model of doxing from this isolated sociality model to this big pool model, it becomes much more toxic. And so we now have what are large-scale publicized calls to harassment. I love the metaphor of tide pools and an ocean. Yeah, it really spells it out for you. Yeah. And now doxing is a much more common and widespread phenomenon. Actually, there's been some research into this subject. Researchers at NYU School of Engineering and the University of Illinois at Chicago conducted the first large-scale study of who gets doxxed and why. Okay, what did they find? They discovered that while women experience more online harassment in general, more doxes in their sample actually targeted males. Huh. The authors noted that it would be wrong, however, to suggest that men are doxed more than women because most of the male doxing victims in their study were identified either as gamers or hackers, which are roles that tend to be more male-dominated. Okay, so there was a bit of a sample bias. Exactly. This study also identified the doxers' motivation, and they found that justice and revenge were two of the most common ones. Justice and revenge sound very... What's the word? Marvel. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Followed by motivations such as competitive or political reasons. In the doxes that they examined, 90% included the victim's address, 61 included their phone number, and 50% included family information. Oh, like the names of your parents? Or even your kids. Right. Awful. Less common tactics included credit card information, social security numbers, or even criminal records. Huh. After they published these findings, Damon McCoy, one of the researchers, and several of his colleagues were themselves doxxed. Uh, of course they were. Of course they were. And there are tons of highly publicized examples of this modern kind of doxing. And these doxes can range from kind of almost lighthearted and maybe even not malicious to begin with to doxes with overwhelming pretty disturbing consequences. Oh, totally. Mm -hmm. So like one that jumps to my mind is the cat lady. I don't know this one. Okay. So in 2010, mm -hmm. in Coventry, England, CCTV video picked up this woman. So she's like walking down the sidewalk. There's a gray cat sitting near a trash bin that someone's put on the curb. Uh -huh. And she pauses by the cat and kind of scratches his head like you would. And then she picks up the cat by the scruff of its uh -huh. neck, drops it in the trash can, what? and puts the lid on. What? Yeah. Why'd she do that? I don't know. Oh. But 
That's what happened. And it was caught on tape. The people who lived in that house had installed CCTV surveillance videos. Like private footage. Exactly, because people were like sideswiping their car. Mm. And so they set up these surveillance cameras, caught it on tape, and they posted it to YouTube because it was their cat. So 4chan, the message board, got a hold of this, doxed her. (gasps) And she just got this flood of hate mail and death threats to the point that she needed to go like under police protection and into hiding. Oh, my gosh. I know. For me, the one that first came to mind when we talked about doxing was after the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013. Mm -hmm. Do you know about this doxing? No, I don't think so. Okay, so the FBI released photos after this horrible bombing occurred of the incident and asked people on the internet to identify suspects. Oh, I actually do remember this. Like, everyone piled on and started trying to, like... ID people. Exactly. So the photos get on Reddit and Reddit sleuths went wild. And one Redditor posted a photo of a man who looked similar, she thought, to one of the suspects. Okay. So this man had been missing for a month. So suddenly everyone on the internet is thinking he's been in hiding, plotting the attack. Mm -hmm. So other Redditors track down this man's name, his address, and start harassing his family. This story takes a turn because about a week after the Boston Marathon bombing, Mm -hmm. everyone finds out that the reason this man has been missing is because he had died by suicide a month earlier. Oh, my God. So these Redditors were feeling so self-righteous about identifying this bomber. We're actually harassing this terrified, grieving family. Right. So there are cases where doxing goes seriously wrong. Yeah, that's so disturbing. We hear all these examples, but I wanted to talk to someone who could speak to the actual human experience of being doxed. And this proved tough because people who have been doxed might not be the most eager to open up about their privacy being threatened, right? I can completely understand that. Yes, exactly. But luckily for us, Anita Sarkeesian agreed to share her story. You might recognize Anita's name because she was one of the victims of Gamergate. If you don't know, Gamergate is the name for a movement of gamers who launched online harassment campaigns against women in gaming and journalism, and Anita was one of their first victims. But... This was not the first time that Anita had experienced online harassment, and she had been a vocal critic of online misogyny way before Gamergate. And she told us about how it all began. In 2012, I launched a Kickstarter to fund a series of videos that would look at the way women are represented in video games. And I had no idea that that would change my entire life. <laughs> uh, as soon as I announced it, it sort of blew up in in a number of ways. We had folks who were really excited and interested and really wanted this project to happen. And we actually hit our funding goals within 24 hours, which kind of blew my mind. Two weeks in um, is when the harassment started. And it started on YouTube and it sort of just exploded from there. The comments on my YouTube crowdfunding video were just inundated with horrific messages, um, sexist and racist slurs and rape threats and death threats. And, you know, this was a moment for me to decide what I wanted to do. Because when you expose harassment, it makes it worse. (laughs) So I decided that sharing what was happening was really important. And it did significantly get worse. (laughs) I'm assuming that's where the doxing comes in. Exactly. Pretty soon into this tirade of abuse, 
Anita was doxxed. When the harassment first started, the only addresses they could find of mine were old addresses. I wasn't worried about it because I wasn't living at those places anymore. What did end up happening, though, is that they started sending pizzas, which is one of their strategies, and it's always with extra sausage. Get it? <laughs> so they started sending like boatloads of pizzas to one of my old addresses. And I eventually had to call, I think they were using Domino's or whatever, and be like, hey, I know that pizzas are being sent out from this place to this address. Like these poor people don't know what's going on. Like just don't send anything to this address, please. And the pizza thing is a common strategy. The sausage part, though. Oh <laughs> it's a bit much. It's like almost funny, but... Of course, terrifying. Yes, because it's more than just the pizza, right? Yeah. Having that information out on the internet is a mass call to harassment that anybody in the world can now receive. Because of the tide pool ocean thing, like anyone in the world. Exactly. There's a similar tactic, a little bit related, called swatting. Molly and I talked about swatting too. Completely messed up. And terrifying. Mm -hmm. So the word swatting comes from the SWAT team. Like special weapons and tactics. Right. So yeah. some people will find somebody's personal address online and they call in a fake police report, usually something violent or urgent like a hostage situation. So... The SWAT team shows up, guns blazing, and responds as if there's a hostage situation in that house. In the real world, a man in Kansas died from a swatting call in December of 2017. Mm. So doxing might happen online, but its implications happen in the real world. Right. Actually, uh, something I didn't know about swatting that Molly mentioned is that it was only actually made possible by technology that was intended to be used for accessibility issues. Like what? So like systems that exist to help deaf people use the telephone. Whoa. It's called a teletypewriter relay. So the person who's deaf calls into this service. They type what they want to say. The operator calls the person they want to talk to and says their message. And then when the person at the end of the line speaks back, the operator relays it back to the deaf person in text. So how does that relate to swatting? Okay, so the operator is acting as a go-between for the deaf person and the hearing person. And some swatters call into the teletypewriter relay, type in the 911 call, and have the human operator call 911. Oh, so are they trying to disguise their voice? I mean, that's part of it. But the main reason is that the teletypewriter calls are legislated to be confidential. Oh. Plus, nobody wants to put the onus on the operators to determine what's a hoax. And you don't want to put the onus on the deaf person to prove that they're deaf before they place an emergency call. It's really hard to police. Wow. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's such a manipulation. It's kind of sick how they're using this thing that's intended to help people, you know, communicate. Oh, man. And all I can think about when we're talking about this is how can I protect myself from this happening to me? Yeah, I got way down this rabbit hole of paranoia <laughs> when researching this topic ahead of speaking to Molly. Yeah, you need like a tinfoil hat now. Yes, I'm working on the tinfoil hat <laughs> as we speak. So like what I want to ask you, Pippa, yes. is like how would you rate your own online presence? Like how private or safe do you think you're being online? Honestly, I'm not intentionally all that careful. Uh -huh. I feel like I sort of go with the philosophy that like we are already hooped. Yep. Anything that a social media eye in the sky wants to know about me, they can already find out. Yeah. I have a private Instagram account, but that's about it. Yeah. I guess I think a little bit more about it. It's a bit more top of mind for me. Like mm -hmm. I use a password manager. Yeah. I won't say which. <laughs> and uh, 
I, I do the whole uh, tape over the webcam because I was researching before talking to Molly and got into the spiral of reading things about how like Mark Zuckerberg has tape over his webcam and Whoa. if he has tape over his webcam then like everyone should be you know yeah it doesn't hurt me to do it and so I just did it it makes me feel a little batty yeah I hear that <laughs> And, you know, I have, like, the ad blockers. But I should clarify, like, I was cautious before, but I didn't feel like I was completely exposed online. Mm -hmm. After talking to Molly. Now, now you're paranoid? I'm just, like, full-blown. Well, I asked Molly, is there any way to actually be off the grid? Here's what they said. The short answer is no. The long answer is no, and there never has been. There isn't really a way to protect yourself from being doxxed. You don't even need to be a hacker to do this. There are so many different sources of personal information that exist online for everyone, regardless of your level of online activity. So there are things that are called information brokers. And what information brokers do is they collect profiles on people. What you can do is you just type in a name and it will be like, oh, this name is associated with these addresses, with these other people, with these online accounts. And here are things that we surmise about this individual. It is very easy to find this information and often free or of very low cost. So this was always available. You could always get a Yellow Pages from a person's hometown and be like, oh, here are the other people at this address. But those things were far away from each other and it took effort and you had to be really dedicated <laughs> to go and find them. But you don't need to do that anymore. All of this information is very much at your fingertips and it's all been collected already for you. And that makes doxing very easy. Yeah, I didn't know about that part. <laughs> so is there even any point trying to protect yourself online? Oh, I mean, yes and no. I don't want to like just give up and be like, this is life now. In a way, it's easy to put the internet in a box and feel like it's all kind of imaginary or intangible. But what goes on online has very, very real consequences for your life, like what Anita was sharing with us earlier. Well, like doxing happened for Anita in more ways than just the pizza that we mentioned before. For example, she had to cancel a talk at the Utah State University in 2014 because a student sent an email to the school saying that feminists had ruined their life and they were threatening the deadliest school shooting in American history and uh, compared what they planned to the Montreal-style attack if the event wasn't cancelled. Oh, yeah, like the, the shooting that was in the late 80s at the university in Montreal. Which was also an anti-feminist-motivated attack. Mm -hmm. The talk that Anita was giving was in Utah, where concealed firearms are allowed in public places. And the school refused to have metal detectors, so Anita cancelled the event. Kind of the only option, if she feels really in danger. That's what she said. She had many other speaking events threatened, and she went through with them. Yeah, that would be so nerve-wracking. I know. Public speaking is already hard enough. <laughs> yeah. And thinking about death threats and hate mail while you're public speaking probably doesn't make it any easier. Oh, boy. Uh, after Anita canceled the event, a Twitter user named Squinky at the Squink tweeted, 1999, gamers demand that we stop blaming school shootings on video games. 2014, gamers threaten a school shooting because video games. That's a good tweet. It's a very good tweet. Yeah. And as unwavering as Anita has been in the face of all this harassment, she has felt threatened in her home before. It was this weird moment where I was like, I'm not leaving my house. You're not going to scare me into doing this. And all of my friends were like, just like, come stay at my house for the night. <laughs> They're like, it, it literally costs you nothing to leave your house. Like, what is wrong with you right now? So I did. 
And there were there were several very serious threats that were sent to me at my address repeatedly for weeks. And so, you know, the police regularly visited my house. I had to talk to all of my neighbors to let them know what was going on and to keep an eye out. It's not it's not a fun experience. That must really eat away at you, like always be in the back of your mind. Seriously. And and she was getting it on every level at that time in her work, online, even in her home. Mm-hmm. But she kept going, kept public speaking, kept posting online, even while she was afraid. She told me about how that stress affected her. You just kind of have to like suck up the trauma and not really acknowledge how bad it is in order to keep doing that compartmentalizing trauma is what you do to get through the trauma, but it's not healthy. Every aspect of my life between my professional life and my personal life and my mental health and my physical health all took a huge toll because I was like, I just need to get through this day. And that was every day for years. So we can't just say like, oh, it's just words because just words can really create enormous amount of trauma and stress and harm on individuals and their lives. And also, as we have seen, it's not always just online, that it only takes one person to take that information and run with it. Harassment in general, which includes doxing, absolutely changes the way that you function in the world. It's always in the back of your mind. Always, 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 always. That must be such a huge strain on a person. And I can imagine that your first instinct would be to just batten down the hatches. Totally. In the study that I mentioned earlier from NYU and the U of Illinois at Chicago, they found that most people who were doxxed shut down their social media accounts or made them more private. So if doxing is meant to silence people, then it does work. Totally. But you have to wonder, is this level of harassment that's so profoundly disruptive, is it legal? We have harassment laws, right? Yeah, but doxing specifically isn't illegal in the States or Canada. There have been some adjacent laws passed, like, for instance, in California in 2013, the legislature added revenge porn to the penal code. Which I guess is the cousin of doxing. Right. It's publishing uh, sexual photos or videos of someone without their consent to get back at them. Yeah. But doxing itself isn't illegal. And the reason is because that information that's dropped in a dox is considered public information. Wow. Like there are platforms where doxing is a violation of their terms of service. Okay. Um, and docs information can be taken down or the doctor's account suspended if it's discovered. But obviously that system isn't perfect. You have no guarantee of what kind of action the platform provider will take or how quickly. And some of these platforms have billions of users. Right. And while doxing affects people from all demographics, of course, male victims of doxing are often a part of that online community, either as gamers or hackers, like we mentioned. Not to say that women can't be both. Of course. But women or marginalized populations, when they get doxed, they receive specific targeting based on their gender or their race. So, for example, certain doxing strategies are used specifically against women, like a doxer making a fake Craigslist post advertising sexual services, or doxing that involves sexual content or personal photos like revenge porn. Here's Molly on how doxing works differently when it comes to women or marginalized communities. In the States and in other Western English-speaking jurisdictions, even though we've seen the effects of malicious doxing, even though we've seen the effects of harassment and we can 
quantify them and we know what they are. We know that they're targeted primarily at minorities and women and the LGBT community and other vulnerable populations. Those populations are usually the ones that have the most difficulty getting remedies for these types of violations because these platforms consider themselves to be bastions of free speech, which, as you probably know, is a set of rights that attaches to you most strongly if you are a straight white man with a lot of money. The cyber world reflects the values of the real world. Of course. A lot of Anita's activism is about speaking out for other women as well, women who are disproportionately targeted by doxing and online harassment. Doxing is a practice that is used against women regularly. If you look at a, a lot of the ways that these men harass us, especially in games, is they use the language of games, right? They are the heroes and they're taken down like, you know, the evil villains. That's me and all of these other women and, and folks in the industry who support us. And they 100% think they're the heroes. And that's a really tough thing to get through to. Now, obviously, Anita's experiences are terrible. Yeah. But when you talk about doxing, you very quickly get into some difficult ethical questions and gray areas. Yeah, it's messy to differentiate between one political ideology and the other. Or even more of an ethical quandary is like, does anyone deserve to be doxxed? How big should the consequences for your actions be? And like, who decides where that line is? Yeah. Here's Molly on the ethics of doxing. If you have decided to be a member of a hate group, then you are committing a sin against society and that that is something that society can decide to police. Should someone get doxxed and lose their job because they threw a cat in a garbage can? Maybe I don't want that person over for tea. Maybe I think they're kind of an asshole. Should the entire internet have ganged up on this one human? No, probably not. So the question is, like many things on the internet, one of scale. It's a question of scale. And also uh, something that's pertinent to mention is, like uh, in Molly's book, Hacktivism, there are hackers hacking for good causes, and there's online harassment for bad causes. So if you make one legal, what are you doing to the other? But just to complicate things further, mm -hmm. like Anita says, the people who are coming after her, they think they're on the side of good. Yeah. Everybody sees themselves as the hero. Mm -hmm. So who gets to make the decision about whose privacy is important to respect and whose privacy is public domain? Yeah. And how punitive should society be for doing one bad thing? It's a very gray territory. And so there's this thing in Europe called the right to be forgotten. That's poetic. Yeah. So that's a, a European law. And basically what it is, is that in the EU, you can now sue to have negative news stories about yourself removed after a certain period of time. So the idea behind this is that, like, you shouldn't be forever the one bad thing that you did that was reported on in the public sphere. Like before you might do something and it's reported on and then it like goes into microfiche in a library and it gets forgotten. But now the internet is forever. Totally. And everyone who Googles you will always be able to find this thing. And that's what that EU law is recognizing that like you have a right to be forgotten. The ethics around that are really interesting because... There are some things that nobody should forget about, right? But who gets to decide? Yeah. Okay, so where does this leave us? I asked Molly 
what the future of doxing holds. And Molly's answer was essentially that just like doxing has been around since there was more than one person on the internet, it'll probably stick around as long as that's still the case. That's pretty bleak. <laughs> yeah. But there was actually one bright spot in our conversation. Oh, please, please. Uh, it's teens. Teens? Yeah. I feel like the reputation of teens is that everything's online. They're glued to their phones. Mm -hmm. But according to Molly, they've got their whole own world going on online that is actually pretty hard to crack. I actually have no teens in my life right now, like no relatives who are teenaged, but Molly does. So I was super interested to hear dispatches from teendom. People always talk about how, oh, the teens don't care about privacy, but every teen I've ever talked to refuses to put anything about them online. Like, they just straight up are like, why on earth would I do that? Why would I put that information out there? We already know the teens are not on Facebook. The teens are not on Twitter. The teens are on their own platforms and sort of talking on their own sort of systems. They use platforms that are created to be ephemeral. They engage in types of content making that are, like, functionally opaque, I feel like the younger generations of social media models are Snapchat, Instagram Live, all these other ways that don't stick around. In theory. Yeah. So I guess the teens are spearheading this new frontier of internet privacy that will quickly become completely impenetrable to us old fogies. <laughs> Children of the future. Yeah. You keep doing you, teens. Thanks, teens. <laughs> That's all for this week's episode. A huge thanks to Anita Sarkeesian and Molly Sauter for sharing their stories. Word Bomb, a TVO podcast, is produced by me, Pippa Johnstone. And me, Karina Palmatesta. Thanks to Hannah Sung, manager of podcasts at TVO. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also follow us on TVO's Facebook and Twitter. Just use the hashtag WordBomb. We are also on Instagram at WordBombPodcast and at TVO.org slash WordBomb. Today's show was recorded in the Allen Slate Studios at Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario. On the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Métis, and the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nation. Thanks for listening. 